how do I feel at this moment? It's really, I've never shared this. I'm scared. I'm excited. I'm enthusiastic. I'm full of trepidation. I feel deep gratitude to you for having suggested this and following through. I'm enthusiastic about doing the next stage and still scared. Like maybe this will get out and like. You don't know how it will sound to them and you have no control over that. That's number one. But number two, and I think more importantly, is I think that anything can sound terrible in a soundbite. And my simple advice to anybody is please listen to the entire thing and get context because without the context, yeah, it's very easy to misunderstand any part of this, including things I've said. And this is not about that. This is about laying the context for everything that was delivered. So I think it's really important that please, if you're going to listen to this, I again want to encourage you to listen all the way through. And I'll say that at the beginning so that you really get to understand that. This is easy to take out of context and turn into whatever bias you have. Or you can listen to it all the way through and listen to the human story of a man on his journey, because that's what it is. Hi, this is Josh, and this is The Joshua Spodek Show, formerly Leadership in the Environment. I still bring you leaders in the area of the environment in the form of leaders and role models. Everyone treats stewardship like a burden or a chore, deprivation, sacrifice. So did I until I actually tried it seriously. It is a joy. Everything about it. We're here to share that joy. Meet amazing world-renowned people from all parts of life. Hear about them, what the environment means to them, and hear most of them find something meaningful to act on and then to share their experience. Why? Because stewardship and acting to help others for something greater than all of us creates about the greatest feeling humans can get, as does fresh air, clear water, delicious food, and clean land. That's what we're bringing you. This episode is different than my usual ones about leadership and the environment. This is much more about me. So I'm going to give a little bit more background than I normally do. So for background, I recommend first listening to my episode called Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, Part 1. Very briefly, listen to the whole episode, but it's how watching Bruce Springsteen on Broadway. So Bruce Springsteen is a musician. I love his music. Watching him on Broadway motivated me at last to share some episodes about me. Listeners for a long time and people in my life keep asking me, why do you do this? Why do you work so hard? Why are you into this so much? And my answers never give them enough information. They want to know who is this guy behind the microphone. I try to put myself in the background. I consider leadership and nature. These are the important parts of the podcast as well as the guests. Hearing Bruce share his personal stories, I realized the value of sharing, in his case, about the man behind the music and in mine about the man behind the podcast. So it's not me not being in the background. It's giving more of what of who I am, where I'm coming from. So I committed to sharing more about myself. And I would say I sank my ships, meaning like Cortez, I couldn't retreat. Uh, by doing that episode, I said, I'm going to share some things about myself. But still, weeks passed without my sharing. And it was in the back of my mind one, it was going to feel weird to sit down in front of my microphone and just start talking about myself. But on the other hand, I said I had to do this. So at one point, I'm talking to Dove Barron. Dove Barron, he's been a guest on this podcast. He's a leadership guru. In fact, his episodes are some of the best episodes of, I mean, listen to him and his how much he commits himself fully to what he does. I told him what I basically just said to you. I wanted to do this, wasn't getting around to it. And he said, Josh, here's the solution. I'm going to interview you as a guest on your podcast. Immediately, I saw this was the solution. James Lipton is a big hero of mine. He is the host on Inside the Actor Studio. And on the 200th episode of that show, he was a guest himself on his show, and he was interviewed by Dave Chappelle. I thought of copying that idea when I hit 200 episodes, 
And I wasn't sure whom to ask to interview me and things like that. But once Dove said it, I knew right away he would knock the ball out of the park. I didn't know how. I would say that I put my faith in him, but faith for me is belief without evidence. And But I had all the evidence with him to know that he would do a great job with this. Within the first few minutes of the conversation, as you'll hear in a few minutes, he asked right away what politically incorrect views I held and what people misunderstood about me. He planned great questions. And re-listening later after having done the, the episode or the three episodes that are about to come, they revealed his preparation and the structure that he had in mind. And that structure led me to share, you know, usually when I talk about myself, I'm thinking, how is this going to sound to others? But he got me to where I just spoke and didn't really think about what I was saying, which is more genuine and raw. And he spoke very supportively, sharing about himself at times, giving views that enabled me to share what I usually protect. We recorded three episodes, each delving into parts of me that I've held back out of fear. I've been really scared to share a lot of this stuff. Mainly, it's really in the third episode where we reach my most really poignant fears. But Dove lays the foundation in the first two. So really, all three of them, they fit together. As he says in it, you got to listen to all three to really get it. This first episode is about my relationships with women, how little intimacy I had with my first two or three decades of my life, and then my learning how to open up, how to allow myself to be vulnerable with them, how to support them to be vulnerable with me, and how that blossoming of relationships played a bigger role, not just with my relationships with women, but all my leadership stuff, not a lot of my leadership stuff evolved from out of that. And then that's business relationships, family, all my relationships. And I want to remind you that I was taking classes from the top professors in one of the top business schools in the world. And I think what I learned after that, what I talk about in this episode, the next episode, and the three upcoming sex, drugs, and rock and roll episodes, I learned more from these things. I also talk about how I really feared mainstream views about how I overcame these prejudices, the path that I took. And that came from mainstream society since I overcame them through what I think mainstream society would call misogynist. But in my experience, starting late in life, it was it's really the opposite, but you have to listen to the whole thing to get what I'm talking about. I mean, what I'm talking about is learning to open up. It came from with women, but then with everyone, family, coworkers, everyone that I met. I'm still often socially awkward. I don't want to say that like I've become the most social person ever, but I'm far less restrained than I was before. So this first episode is my first foray into conquering fears that people could hurt me with, but also realizing that it wasn't me that they'd attack but their misunderstanding of me if they knew the full me. And so I hope that comes out. I think Dove did an amazing job of bringing that out. Listen to all three episodes to get the full picture. I thought the fears I mentioned in this episode were my big ones, but they actually set the stage for the ones in the third. So I recommend in the big picture getting to all three. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Dove Barron and Dove just said to me, I got a plan for this. I'm going to take it. I, I don't know where it's going to go. Dove, take it away. Thank you. Well, you know, as you know, the name of this show is Leadership in the Environment. And I believe that we are shaped and formed by our environment, where we grew up, when we grew up. The faith, the art, the literature, the music, or the lack thereof, have all shaped us and formed us. So today, on my mate Joshua Spodek's show, which most of you know is focused on leadership and the environment, we're going to take a look at the environment that has shaped and formed him. Uh, So it's environment in a little bit of a different context because we live in a, what appears to me anyway in my work, is that we live in a single-faceted world. And what I mean by that is that we're expected to show up in a single facet. This is who I am. Here's my bio. And it becomes very restrictive and rigid. And oftentimes, that's not who we are. Often there's a lot more to who we are than that. So we're going to take a look at 
what has formed Joshua, and more importantly, what you may have never known about him. So in case you don't know, my name is Dov Barron, and here's what they say about me. I'm an Inc. Magazine Top 100 Leadership Speaker, Global Top 30 Leadership Gurus, host of the number one podcast in the world for Fortune 500 listeners. I write for um, Entrepreneur Magazine, as well as many other places. I'm a loyalty authority, and they call me the Dragonist. But I want to jump in here. Did you ever see the movie Mother? I don't think I have. Now, let me, let me be clear, because I think there's a, a, more late, a later movie that is more popular, but this is a 1996 movie with Albert Brooks. Did you ever see that movie? It doesn't ring a bell. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about it, because after we decided that we were going to do this, that movie just flashed to me, because I love that film. It's, it's really funny. I don't know if you like Albert Brooks. He is very, very clever. By the way, Albert Brooks, real name, Albert Einstein. So, and he actually is a genius, and that's why he had to change his name. He's actually a Mensa. So he's actually very bright. Had to change his name as he went into, into acting and directing and all those kinds of things. But in that 1996 movie, his character has gone into his third divorce. And he's a smart guy, and he's worked out he's the common denominator. And he has no idea why he keeps screwing up relationships. So he decides that what he has to do is he has to move home and live in his old room in his mother's house. And, and he literally puts up the, the posters that were in the garage and all the things from when he was a kid because he wants to feel the environment of what it was like to grow up with his mother so he can understand himself and he can understand his relationships with women. And I, I thought about that movie so much because mm-hmm. here we are in the uh, COVID isolation, whatever you want to call it, and you have moved back in with yeah, your yeah. mom. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, I immediately thought, I wonder what he's discovered about himself by living with his mom. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as you're saying it, there's a big smile on my face. And I'm like, we're going to talk about relationships with women. So yeah, now I have to watch the movie. Yeah, you do. And it's because it is fascinating. There's one line in there that no, there's many lines in there that are really funny, but one of them is. He like jumps up and down with joy and he goes, oh my God, now I understand. Now I get it. Now I know why you hate me. <laughs> she says, you're jumping up and down with joy because you think I hate you. <laughs> it's just, it's so good. So brilliantly done. Yeah. It's quite an experience being this close to my mom after not for since the seventies. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be, I mean, I just spent a little bit of time in the UK. and went back to visit my mom because she's terminally ill. And it was fascinating for me because I've, I mean, obviously I've not lived at home for a very long time. I left when I was 15, but nonetheless, going back there and I've tried over the years to have conversations with my mom that that were just off the, off the plate, but going back this time after such a long period of time and also with her facing death, she was willing to share things with me about myself and about her that I'd never had. I know that you had a great podcast with your mom, an outstanding podcast with your mom, and a lot of those early memories would have flushed out in the process of that. Was the idea of going to stay with your mom and your stepdad, was that was was there any trepidation to that? Because like you said, you haven't been there in a long time. Yeah, in some ways, yes. Everyone hears about when someone gets older and they come to terms with things. Uh, and I think when people are what, in their teens or 20s, they, they want to develop their independence. And 
everyone has some degree. I would guess that I was farther out on the spectrum than most of, of that I tried to be more independent, which meant spending less time with the family. Like I'd come back for Thanksgiving and some of the major holidays, but really I would avoid it for a long time. So that meant that there was a lot of things that I didn't really know and a lot of things I was rebelling against, not like smoking cigarettes, but just wanted to get away from. But my whole practice of leadership is, is understanding yourself, understanding others, making others feel understood. So there was a big lacking thing. And now one thing that made it easy was the New York City in early March was very clearly had a lot of people with COVID in it, but unknown number. Could be tens of thousands, could be hundreds of thousands. I had no idea. So if I wanted to leave Manhattan, the only place I could really go, my dad in Philadelphia, that wouldn't be that much different than New York. So my mom's outside of New York. It was either then or never because she's 76. My stepfather, her husband is about the same age and she has asthma. So it was like now or never. And so it, I didn't take, I didn't dwell on the decision. I just came. I mean, it seemed like the, that was the advice, social distancing. So it seemed the safest thing to do. And then I knew that it was going to lead to something. I mean, I didn't know how long I was going to be here. I still don't know how long I'm going to be here. So, you know, when you're at our age, you grew up and you saw episodes of Happy Days and every other show when they got locked in the freezer over the weekend and they had to spend all that time together and they got closer. And I thought, I guess something like that's going to happen now. <laughs> well, don't bother with the freezer. I'm, <laughs> I definitely think that that's not a recommendation. You know, I, I wanted to address this show really as we talked about, about I believe that we're all formed in our environment. And I, and I also believe we can evolve beyond that. So let me be clear here. But that being said, there is, by virtue of the world we live in, an image. There's an image of Dove. There's an image of Joshua. There's an image, particularly those of us who are front-facing, meaning you know, we have a political or we have a, a public face, you know? What is the image, you, if somebody was describing you who only knew you as the persona, how do you think people would describe you? If they know me recently, I was talking about this to someone lately, and I think if someone asked me like the three adjectives that people would use for me, and I think, I think people describe me as smart. I think people describe me as intense, and I think people describe me as environmental. I mean, if you're physical, I mean, they could say like he's tall and I don't know, fit. But that's like kind of how I am. I mean, those aren't really choices. I guess the fitness is a choice, but you know, the physical stuff is just, you know, blue eyes. Right. So what what's one thing that you know about yourself that tends to contradict the front-facing image? Maybe not in those three adjectives that you just used, but in the way that people perceive you, that you know about yourself, you're like, you know what? That's a part of myself that's kind of contradictory to what people think. Well, there's one superficial one that comes to mind first is that everybody thinks I'm acting for the environment and I'm acting for other people. And there's a huge difference. The emotions involved are, are very different. And I can't really get this across. And people consistently, they ask me why I'm doing these things and my answers never suffice. So there's something that's not coming across. Also, the stuff about all the Sid shots, the, the daily habits, some people see it as rigidity, maybe OCD. And to me, it's about freedom and self-awareness. See, I love that you go there, right? That some people see it as OCD and you see it as freedom. And if we put those two things together, we go, well, obviously OCD isn't free. 
but you have found your freedom in your structure. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. That's, that's where I think freedom exists. Freedom without structure would be to me, chaos or randomness. That's not the same thing as within structure because the structure comes from my values. Okay. So let's push it a bit further in that one first, before we go anywhere else. What would you say is your, you know, I mean, you're an academic, you're, you're, you're respected in all kinds of ways, but what would you, uh, we live in this politically correct world. What would you say is the most, what's your, your personal, most politically incorrect opinion? Mm, I mean, a lot of why I said to you what I said that led you to say all in review, it's hard to say. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of views about, let's see, gender and sex that to me seem pretty clear. And I think most people would agree with, but I don't think they're politically correct. People constantly call me privileged. And so my views on privilege are different than most others. I mean, my views on population are probably not politically correct, but I think they're the most healthy around. So let's, let's, go, to, let's go to some of those right away. Let's go to your deepest vulnerability. Yeah. <laughs> yeah let's, let's dive in on some of those. So first of all, gender. You brought up gender first. Mm-hmm. Gender, sexuality, et cetera. You said some of your opinions on that, maybe not politically correct, even though they are shared. What does that mean? This can go in many different directions. My relationships with women, and so men and women, I'm straight, so men, women, uh, how we interact. And a lot of my stuff is pretty traditional in the sense of my idea of masculinity doesn't fit with, oh, men. I live in Greenwich Village. There's the gay pride parade uh, every June comes through. And it, it is built to be an inclusive event. It's like, we are inclusive. It's a rainbow. Everyone is welcome. I feel totally unwelcome there. I feel like my sexuality just does not fit in, in theirs. And I feel borderline attacked. I don't feel welcome. And, and there's no parade for me. In fact, I get the opposite of a parade. But because you're a straight it, white male? I'm a straight white male. And if I was attracted to blondes, my life would be so much easier. But I'm not. And I don't think I've ever said this really publicly, but if you look at who I've dated, I date mostly Asian women. This is who I'm attracted to, you know, born this way. I didn't ask for it. And the best I get is at least you're not one of the creepy ones. Like, that's what they say is like, if I said, you know, if I came out of the closet and said I was gay, people would be like, great, great. It's so great. You know, just share it and tell us who you are and so forth. If I say publicly, I'm attracted to Asian women. I kind of have to explain it. And I have to say, like, I have to describe how I'm not racist. That it's not that I want some submissive stereotype. And at very vulnerable times, I've been so deeply shamed. And so it took decades for me to get past some of these things that I got. Just because the the expectation is that you're creepy. And and I want to clarify that it's, it's, it's not that they're more attractive as far as I can tell. It's just that the others aren't as attractive. I wish I could be attracted to more people. But I think even that's an explanation. I don't think you need it personally, but you know, I'm just like, what, you know, did you notice when you first found, like, I'll give you an example. Like when I was, when I was a kid, I think I was 14, 13, 14, there was an advertisement on TV and it was for Nescaf Cafe. And there was a, a girl holding a Nescaf jar and she was shaking it and she's saying, there's a whole lot of coffee in Brazil. And I was like, oh my God, I'm in love, right? Take that me to woman, Brazil, yeah. 
Well, that exactly right. She was brown skinned. She had curly hair. She was curvy. By the way, she was a model who Michael Caine saw the same commercial I did, pursued her and married her. And he's still married to her to this day. Um, But I was so attracted to that woman. Yet, when I got married, I got married at 16. When I got married, I married a blonde with big boobs because Farrah Fawcett Major of the uh, Charlie's Angels was the popular thing. And it was kind of like I felt uh, uh, a responsibility to be attracted to an American blonde-looking girl, which is what Chris looked like. Um, But in truth, I know that I was always attracted to dark-skinned, curvy women who I am now married to for several decades. So, you know what I mean? I mean, so so I, I know that that was there without me. It was like, I saw lots of attractive women, but that was like, Oh yeah, the lights went on for me at fourteen. Do you have that sense with being attracted to Asian women? Yeah, I had an experience like that, and I'm glad you said it that way because no one else has asked. And like, it's so much more comfortable when someone shares something about themselves, and then you feel you can go there. One time in high school, I was on the bus. This would have been the 26 bus, the SEPTA bus in Philadelphia, and a girl got on, and I'd never seen her before. I think that she probably, I went to Central High School, which uh, across the street was Girls High School. And I think she went to that school. And I'm pretty sure she was Korean. I wouldn't have known that at the time, but, and it was just like the rest of the world just faded away. It was just the most beautiful, I can't say sexy because I was too young, but, you know, getting there, early puberty, mid puberty. I was just like, wow, that's amazing. And then for a long time after that, I felt like I couldn't share that. Because there's another time in college. What year was this? Second year, third year? I forget exactly the year. And I was hanging out with some friends in, you know, dorm room chatting stuff. And there were two Asian girls in the room at the time and a whole bunch of others. One of them, I guess, had picked up that I was attracted to Asian girls. And so I'm talking, and out of the corner of my eye, I see that one of them, the one that knew that knew me better, is signaling to the other. And she's like pointing at me and with her hands, the readers can't read this, but she's pulling out the eyes, you know, how you would say like Asian eyes. And she's pointing at me and saying, she's sitting to the other girl, watch out. He likes Asian girls. And so I felt, oh, I better not let that out. There's something wrong with me that I should hide because the girls that I'm attracted to need to be warned against me is what I learned. From then on, I've heard girls talking about guys hitting on them and I've heard girls go like, he said this. And I was like, no way, Jose, or something like that. But I've never heard a girl say he hit on me. And I was like, yes, I love it. So I had this double whammy of thinking girls didn't like to be hit on. And that a guy, a white man who's into Asian women, Asian women should be warned against him. I'm not an Asian woman. What do I know? They are. So I figured they know something that I don't, I, I should learn from them. Okay, so you had this first girl at high school. You were like, oh, right. And then you had this, this experience, which was certainly not positive. Do you, do you feel like those experiences impacted not just your confidence with Asian women, but with women? Oh, yeah, totally. I felt that I couldn't hit on a girl. And I couldn't, definitely couldn't hit on a girl that I was attracted to. I had to act as if it just happened. I had to act as if 
I wasn't trying. And needless to say, the amount of intimacy that I had with women was very low for a long time. And I felt powerless. You know, it was really, it, I haven't really gone through and, and explored this. All I know is that it really sucked. I mean, all through college, I had a girlfriend from high school, one of my great, great loves, and uh, she wasn't Asian. And we stayed together for a little bit into college, a little too long, whatever. That's how things go. And then I had a girlfriend at the end of college. We met during spring break of my senior year. And in between, I had some experiences with girls, but no meaningful relationships. All my friends would say, you got a girlfriend? I was, and never did. And I didn't know what to do. I was, I mean, looking back, I, I could have learned differently and I didn't, but I thought I'd learned some pretty powerful lessons in like in that experience with those two girls. So that one girl signaling to the other was pretty powerful for me. When you looked in the mirror, how did you see yourself? Because, you know, you, you, you would have been out in the world at some level. You saw your mates who, you know, had girlfriends and said, do you have one? You didn't have them. And you'd had these experiences. How did you see yourself in the mirror? I mean, sensitive new age guy. I mean, I wouldn't say that. But no, no, I'm not saying what you would say. I'm, I'm, we're actually asking, like, you're looking in the mirror. These are thoughts in your head about you. I felt like guys who hit on girls were doing something the girls didn't like. And I thought I was a good guy for not doing that. So I would meet girls and try to be friends with them and make it clear, oh, oh, I'm just friends. And I would secretly hope that they would, yeah, that, okay, they had a boyfriend. And like this girl will have a boyfriend. And I figure, okay, eventually she'll break up. And I'm, I'm going to be such a great guy that she'll like me. And then she'd break up and then she'd find another guy. And I figured, I mean, from her perspective, I was a non-sexual being. From my perspective, how many guys can she know? Eventually she'll run out of boyfriends and then it'll be inevitable. So I was just juggling all these friends. Did you see yourself as an attractive guy? Because you saw yourself as a sensitive new age guy, but did you see yourself as an attractive guy? I don't think so. I, I didn't think of myself as unattractive. I just thought of myself as like a great guy. So and, you saw yourself as a great guy, as in personality, interesting, interested, wanting to know people, etc. But certainly not in the movie star good looks and certainly not in the other end of that spectrum either. Just a good guy. Yeah. And I, I had this model that came to me from society. I can't place any particular place, but it was get a good job, get a good house, get a good car. There's nothing about being attractive to women or being attractive. It was just that and like things will work out. So I figured that was a major factor in me choosing to major in physics, which now sounds very wrongheaded, but growing up with my father was a history professor. So academia was my, was my world. So, and then going to an Ivy League school, to me, I would look around and like, who has the highest status in my world? Well, professors. And now I look at them like, do I look up to professors? I don't look down on them just because they're professors, but it's not like I'm like, oh, you're a college professor. Great. But at the time in the world of a university, the professor is like really highly ranked. And then a physics professor, I've heard people say like philosophy, what's that? I've never heard someone say physics. That's like a nothing thing. I mean, there's Einstein, there's Newton, there's Feynman. 
I, don't get me wrong. I love physics. I love nature and the beauty of nature. And that drives a lot of what I do today. But at the time I felt if I'm a physics professor, then everyone will look up at me and I'll be even more attractive. So it was all these sort of bolt on things to be attractive that had nothing to do with who you really were. I, to my mind, there was a set of values that society held and I was trying to succeed by those values. I mean, bluntly, when, and normally I talk about this in a leadership context and I would say I, there was a maze in front of me and I was going to get through that maze fastest or best. What I wanted, or, that didn't factor in my cares or hopes or dreams. It was what's, what is most successful. You brought up something that I find really interesting that, that's going to lead us into another direction that I want to talk about in a minute. But I haven't talked about this much on my shows either. But when I, up until probably 26, 27, I was convinced I was ugly and stupid. Completely convinced I was ugly and stupid. But I was good. And my, my dad was a philanderer beyond philanderers. Actually, he was the only one who could beat him at the job was my stepfather. Um, they both were complete whores. I mean, they just, and I mean that in not a pleasant way because they were both married guys and both in quote unquote monogamous relationships and were anything but. And so I got a very clear model that your dad was a bad guy because he screwed everybody. And your stepdad is a bad guy because he screws everybody. So a good guy doesn't do that. And what's more is I'd walk down the street when I was a kid and people would say, I know who you are. And I'd look at him and they'd go, Ooh, I'd recognize him anywhere. He's just like his father. Now, you know, no equation in my child brain going, do they mean characteristically or visually? <laughs> so visually I looked like my dad, but you know, characteristically that meant I was a bad guy. So there was overemphasis on being a good guy. And the interesting thing about what you said was I was so focused on being good that I was always in the friend zone, always in the friend zone, mm -hmm. never could get out of the friend zone. And my mates would say, you could have any chick you want to be like, what are you talking about? Yeah. To me, that was, it was the opposite of what I would think was right. In college, I helped organize uh, Take Back the Night. So across the street from Columbia, where I went was Barnard and Barnard's an all women's school. And I remember attending one and thinking it was so, it was so powerful an event that I felt like I should participate in this and help with it. And I felt like my friends were like, oh, you're trying to get girls that way. I was like, that's not what I'm doing. It was a very powerful experience. This translate, this gets, oh, I should also mention that my, um, my parents divorced when I was young. Seeing my mom and dad in the same room at the same time was rare. It would happen at family at graduations and things like that. The energy in the room was like palpable and weird. I mean, I still don't really get how things evolved to the way they did. And if I see that, I can't see how they had three kids. If I see how they had three kids, I, something doesn't fit. I still don't get it. And then my mom remarried and I never saw masculinity, especially with women. My father's masculinity, I, I see as very brittle. I, I never saw him romantic. I never saw someone that I knew grab a girl around the waist and pull her over and have her put her hands on his chest and, 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 you know, like look each other in the eye and just be like, take me away. You what swashbuckler or something like that. I don't know, depending on what they're into. I never saw anything like that. It was never playful. It was never fun. 
And well, this carries over into another perspective on gender and sexuality, or no, sex, sex and gender that I don't know, I don't know how PC this is going to be, but I grew up thinking there's a patriarchy and men oppressed women. And there were these little signs that didn't quite fit. It wasn't really until I read The Myth of Male Power. And I started reading it thinking, this is total nonsense. What women have trouble, men don't. It's And then I read it and I'm like, looking at prison and draft and emotional support. And there was something that hit me when I turned 17, I got a, a letter from the U S government saying on your, by your 18th birthday, you must register for selective service, which is the draft. I call it the draft. I don't know. You can call it what you want. My sisters didn't get that letter and something was up with that. And that was the beginning of something kind of weird. My parents are both Jewish. I don't consider myself religious, but the first time I heard about the concept of a bris, a party, cutting off part of a male body, it was like something didn't make sense. And so then since then, things have started to make sense in a way that um, I think makes total sense to me, but is not mainstream. And I've talked about it a little bit, but people tend to not want to hear it. No, it's not that they don't want to hear it. They, they, they have the view that I used to. And I don't know. It's not my, um, it's not my battle. It's just a view that sometimes comes out when I'm talking about it. And I, don't know, I think my mom was saying something recently about guys with their cars and they get like sports cars and they drive around really fast. And I thought, well, I see pretty girls getting out of those cars. So it's not like just men. It's not like men are bad. So it sounds like you see there is gender bias, but you also see the male side of that, meaning men suffer under it as much as women do, just differently. Yeah, just as much. I, I'm not going to quantify it, but men suffer. And there's not a lot of support for, for men in this area. I mean, if there's a pay gap, whatever the pay gap is, there's like a death gap the other direction. I mean, the number of people, people who die on the job, it's, it's like over almost all men. The society we live in has given us some very, very confusing ideas about what masculinity is. And you, you, know, you were talking about, about men and their cars. Let's talk about peacocking. Mm -hmm. Because you went from being this, let's say, awkward. Uh, this guy who was in the friend zone constantly, um, not facing direct connection with women to looking into how to overcome that. Talk to us a little bit about that journey, which I'm sure is not part of your normal conversation of, and certainly part of the persona of uh, that image of how people see you. But you said you, you know, you struggled with being comfortable with the intimacy of women and knowing how to approach them. Talk to us about your movement into that world. Then I have to give more context of, of I got to talk about my high school girlfriend. And this is a long, a long story. So in high school, I was not the nerdiest guy in the school, but I was pretty nerdy. So junior year, I'm sitting in the lunchroom with some friends and I'll just use her first name. Julie sits down and she's cutting class and she sits at the table and we start talking, we joke around. Something happens. I don't know. I don't remember the details. It's like the eighties, but I get her number. And that, that night or maybe the next night I call her up and we start talking on the phone and she becomes the girl that I talk to three or four hours a night 
three or four nights a week. And I'm staying at my dad's house at this time and he and I are not getting along. So she becomes a very close person in my life. So Central High School is in the middle of Philadelphia. I live in the west of it and she lives far northeast. So we'd only see each other at school. We didn't have any classes together. And I didn't know this until later, but a lot of guys considered her the most attractive girl in school. Between that winter of my junior year and the winter of my senior year, we spend all this time together on the phone, but almost never in person. And she gets invited to all these parties and she invites me so I get to go. So I'm at the parties, but I'm not hanging out with her because she's surrounded by all these guys. And, you know, we'd say hi a little bit and we'd see each other in the hallway in passing. Anyway, by senior year, I was, I was in love with her. And I, I think I told her at some point. And so senior prom is coming up. I ask her if she will go to the prom with me. And she says, no, she's got a date with someone else. And eventually I ask around a couple of girls and then this girl, Katie was really into me. And so I get a date with Katie and in between both her, Julie being set and me being set with dates, Julie then falls in love with me. And she starts hanging out with some friends near me and we start hanging out. So by senior prom, which is probably April, I mean, it's towards the end of school, of the school year, she and I are in love with each other. And I have to mention another thing that, there was this guy, Seth. Seth picked on me a lot. He was really funny, really smart guy, but cooler than me. And I was really defenseless against people picking on me because I couldn't see the point of making fun of someone. And so when someone would do this, I, I didn't really, I just thought they'd stop eventually. So I didn't push back. Anyway, one time Seth goes up to Julie. So Julie tells me one time that Seth comes up to her and says that he loves her. So it's kind of interesting to know a guy that I don't like that picks on me says to a girl who at this point is in love with me that he loves her. And what she said was she, at that time, she was not yet in love with me. She was thinking about someone else. So she says to him, I like someone else and walks away. Senior prom at the after party, sadly for our dates, Julie and I are in love with each other. We start connecting, hooking up, but not sex, but like, you know, we're clearly making out with each other at the after party at some, someone's home. Most people didn't know that I even knew her, let alone that we're suddenly, Josh has the hottest girl in school. I mean, there's lots of different clicks and stuff, but of the people that I knew, in particular, Seth had no idea when she said, I like someone else. She was talking about someone else entirely. But as far as he knows, she says, I like someone else and ends with me. I'm sure that people have been to a baseball game where the team has been down since the first inning. And then in the ninth inning, there's a grand slam home run. And it's much better than if you're up the whole game. And I had this come from behind win that was, it retroactively made all of high school amazing. I mean, high school was, was really amazing. I mean, the, the social part wasn't so great, but I have very fond memories. Central high school was incredibly diverse, incredibly, it was this beautiful rainbow of, of everything. It was one of my favorite experiences in life. In large part, I mean, a lot of it because of this experience where I just, between senior prom and graduation, everything was amazing. And, and Julie and I were just, it was just fantastic. We stayed a little stages together too long when she went to school up in Boston, I went to New York and there were heartbreaks and things like that. And my takeaway from this is the tragedy. My takeaway from this was that I can get any girl that I want. All I have to do is be friends with her for a year and a half first. And then it will inevitably happen that she'll see what a great guy I am and she'll fall in love with me. Well, I felt it was, I was actively wooing them all the time just by being such a great guy. So 
that set me up to like befriend all these girls. I remember one time some guy was, I was at a party that I, I was hosting a party and some guy was like, this is many years later. And I said, Josh, I love your parties. There's so many beautiful women around. And I was like, I'm always surrounded by beautiful women, all friends. So very low intimacy. So in my senior year of college, my main two things were ultimate Frisbee and physics. So physics, there's no women or there's no social anything there, but very intellectually stimulating. I love that. In ultimate Frisbee, we, on spring break of my senior year, there was a girl, actually, she was one of the best women in the country, voted at all. But at the time, she was just an up-and-coming player. I was, well, I, I sucked on defense, but I, I think I was the best player on offense. So I was a really great player on the, on the team. And it's not like it was inevitable, but she was the best on the women's team. I was the best on the men's team. And we got together. And she was Korean. And that was my next great love. And there were some things that worked out really well about that, some things that didn't work so well about that. I had my heart deeply broken in that case. And um, both of those, those were my two first loves and, and big parts of my life. And I owe a lot of who I am as a man to what, actually what I learned from, well, what we had together. Julie and I, I've never connected with anyone in that way. And we finished each other's sentences. We finished each other's thoughts. We, we started each other's thoughts. And Kay was so intense and so nothing would stop her from doing what she wanted to do. Anyone who thinks like submissive, Asian submissive is like, they've not met her. She was really intense. And you see, what made those things work was being trapped together by school. Once out of college, there was no stuck together. And I couldn't approach. I couldn't meet. So just just let me pause in there for a second. Uh-huh. You couldn't approach. What does that mean? I felt I would be a bad man to approach. Right. So I just want people who are listening to get that, that you were carrying this idea that if you approached a woman and asked her out or whatever it was, quote, hit on her, then you went from being a good guy to being a bad guy. Yeah. Okay. So here you are, you're out of college, you're no longer glued to <laughs> potential partners and you're out in the world and you're feeling like you're a good guy, but you're not meeting anybody because you're a good guy. What's next? Oh, actually, it gets worse. I'm not out in the world. I'm in graduate school for physics. I knew it wouldn't be a great boost to my social life. So now I would say it differently, but at the time I thought it would absolutely, it absolutely destroyed it because if I'm out in a social situation, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm a graduate student in physics. Then there's two, one of two sentences. Oh, I did really terrible in that. Or, oh, I had a great teacher in that, but I stopped doing it. And then there's like one or two sentences more, and then the conversation's over. Now I can talk about that because I can talk about my love for nature and the beauty and, and the, the challenge and the personal. I can talk about my side of things or my, not my, my view of things, what was, what's inside. But at the time, all I could share was masses of electrons and, and how hard it was. So I would have to take a little while to, to unpack the layers of protection that I've put on top of the solitude. Were you lonely? I was lonely. The way I put it is I had no intimacy with women, with anyone. I, I didn't right. allow so myself that's to That's why I wanted to pause for a minute. That's what I was trying to get at is what I'm hearing and I'm not sure is lack of intimacy, certainly with women, but generally. And it's interesting to me because, and again, I'm just working with what I've got here. But 
you see your mom and dad who had three kids and you don't understand it because there's tension in the room when they're there. You can't even, so you're obviously not seeing a great demonstration of intimacy with mom and dad. So you have no model. Then you go to the good guy world. You become the good guy, but you never really have any intimacy. But I also don't particularly hear you had intimacy anywhere, Mm-mm. even with men. I'm not talking about sexual, but just intimacy. So was there a point when, intim- like I have a client I worked with for a long time, and we were having a conversation one day, and he was saying about his wife being upset with him. And I said, yes, yeah, she misses the intimacy. And he's like, but we have sex. You know? And I said, no, no, sex is not intimacy. And he goes, I don't understand. And he starts beating on himself. And I said, stop beating on yourself. And he goes, why? I said, you had no model. You're upset with yourself for not knowing a language you never learned and you've never heard. You've seen it in movies, but it's foreign. It doesn't make sense. And the subtitles don't match. It's just weird. That's one. Of, so I said, so you can't give yourself crap for not understanding intimacy if you had no model. And, I, you know, and the world of academia is not particularly intimate world. So did you see yourself as being uh, sort of sexually ignorant and playing in that world? Did you, or, you know, could you understand it at the level of intimacy or did you just go, I'm just not getting laid much. You know what I mean? Because you know what I said about that client, I think that we don't understand the distinctions between those two things. With, with Julie, there was deep intimacy. And what we learned from each other, you know, having sex together and, and finishing each other's sentences and things like that, that was really wonderful. And I can't dismiss that. We're not in touch now, but maybe a few years ago, we, we exchanged. This is the sort of thing. We both saved the letters from the other forever. And so she gave me the letters that I wrote to her and I reread them. It's very cringy. I mean, it's not crazy for what a 17 year old, 16 year old would write to a girl, but my model, I I would try to keep her with me through guilt. And I would tell her that I loved her so that she would stay with me. I mean, not in the best times. In the best times, there's no question that everything was fantastic. But as things fell apart, I would try to keep her with me in the ways that I'd learned. There's management, there's leadership. And if you keep going from leadership to management, keep going. Where do you, what do you reach? You reach this controlling, uh, not open, not vulnerable. You know, how can I get what I want? And, and then, uh, then withdrawing when I didn't get it. So let's, like I said, let, let's talk about your, your movement into the world of the peacocks. By the way, I didn't know that it was any different for anyone else. And none of it made sense. I would go to parties, not parties. I remember going to bars. I thought the only way you could meet a girl is either you took classes together or friends would introduce you. So I'd go to bars and I would see all these people talking to each other and I would get mad at my friends because they're clearly meeting each other. So that meant if they didn't know each other before getting here, which meant they met, had a class together or maybe lived in the same dorm, it must be that their friends introduced them. I would introduce my friends to my friends. So if I wasn't meeting girls, it must be my friends being jerks. Right. They're purposefully keeping you out. Well, or more just not even thinking about it. I didn't think it was malevolent. I just think it was like negligent, thoughtless. All these stories that I concoct to make sense of things. Of course. And and like I talked about at the beginning, you know, we are we are constructed by our environment. And and I know from the work that I've been doing for 30 odd years that 
if I say that to people, they go, yeah, of course. And I know they have no idea how much they are impacted by that environment. That, i.e., you know, you have no model for intimacy with mom and dad. You did struggle with intimacy as an adult. You know, that seems pretty clear and obvious, but it's not until you step back. And as you've heard me say before, none of us are objective in our subjective realities. You just don't get to see yourself like the fish does not, cannot describe the water. So it's the same thing. And the lessons that I was learning came from my parents, came from society at large, but most of all came from women themselves. I felt like I was listening and honoring them, but the net effect was to protect myself and hide from them, not from them, but from anything. And that time that the girl was warning the other girl about me. That's why when I say, there's no parade for me. What would that parade be? It's not the gay parade. So what is it? I don't know. Because there would be a parade for white men who are into Asian girls. I don't see that happening. It's, it's just weird. But it's more than that, isn't it, Josh? I mean, that's just an aspect of it. What is that parade? Man, it would be, it would be guys who believe what society told them. This mainstream part of very, now I identify it with like identity politics, that PC stuff that said that it put very restrictive negative views on men that I internalized and believed and felt I was good for these things. Man, it was, you said earlier, how did you describe me? You described me as, as awkward. And that's what I might've looked like from the outside, but inside I was twisted up and trying to be a great guy. and actually following the instruction and the lead of the people who you'd think would be the ones to get the most useful instruction from. But the net effect was just this confused, who thought he was not confused and twisted up, who thought he was upstanding. And looking back now, I don't think I was in, in any way a minority in, in this regard. I think many men, and probably, I don't know, I've never been a woman, so I don't know what they're, what it's like internally for them. I'm sure they've twisted up stuff too. But it's an interesting metaphor for me. Um, you and I are both in the leadership world. And it's an interesting metaphor for me because I see leaders trying to be good leaders. And they're terrible. Terrible. And they believe they're good leaders. And they're awful. They don't have any boundaries. They don't have a solid set of values. They're made of wet tissue paper. And they're asking everybody else for a general consensus on how to be. Pretty much how you just described. And that's a lot of how leadership is done. And unfortunately, leadership is also dominated by men who are also looking to be better. So for me, it's almost a very interesting parallel with your masculinity and looking to women to guide you and seeing the bad guys, seeing the good guys. And, and very similar, I see it all the time in leadership. I have a client that I'm working with, and I'm constantly saying to him, please stop being a nice guy. Nice guys are liars. And he goes, what do you mean? I go, nice guys are liars. You're manipulative tools. Stop being nice. Be real. Be truthful. Be honest. Be connected to your purpose. Be aligned with your values. But we don't get to choose any of that if we're just looking at how they say we should be. So it's an interesting parallel that you find yourself in the world of leadership. 
Do you see that parallel or is it maybe just me seeing that? I see things like that a lot. I see it more in, in the dating coaching world. Most of the time when I've said things, as I've said to you just now, the, this, all this stuff of the past 45 minutes or so that we've been talking, usually I'm pretty, I'm, I'm saying what I'm saying, but I'm also keeping track. Don't say anything off. Keep track of what you're saying. I'm really glad that you suggested doing this conversation this way because I'm not, I'm just answering you. There's a bit in the back of my head saying, evaluating what I'm saying as I'm saying it, but mostly not. I have to listen to this. <laughs> I don't know how it sounds. A lot of the stuff that I'm saying feels to me like, didn't everyone feel like this? Because it was my, my life that's the only life I know. So this is the fourth time I've asked the question. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go back to it. The peacocking stuff. Feels like there's a part of you that's avoiding it. If anybody's listening. So well, I'm trying to build up the, the context. I know, I understand. And, I, and, that's be- and it's because I don't want it to come across that way. Because this is a part of you that I think most people wouldn't know, wouldn't think about. And to give everybody else a, a framework, like I said, you know, as a kid, I felt like I was really ugly and stupid. And even in the early 90s, I was part of the men's movement. When I say the men's movement, please understand, not the men's movement of today. The Robert Bly, the Gillette, the Moore, the, all those amazing Sam Keen, amazing men, guys who were part of the men's movement, many of whom came out of Vietnam and understood men's pain and looked at it, looked at it completely different than what we see the men's movement of today and saw women as magnificent and didn't want to minimize women in any way, shape or form. And then came a whole other men's movement that led to the world of the dating and the peacocking and all the other stuff that many of those guys have fallen out of now. So I, I want to give them a context, the audience a context that I've sort of watched that evolution too. And I think that if I'd have probably been 10 years younger, I could have easily gotten caught in that world. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. So there's a whole part of business school that opened me up to learning social and emotional skills, which I would love to get into, but as you pointed out, it's been four times that you've asked. So after I got my MBA in 2006, in 2007, a friend of mine gave me a book called The Game. And so people don't know, it's Neil Strauss's book, The Game. It's, uh, I think it was a New York Times bestselling book. And it told the story about a pickup artist. And that's not my lingo. I think that lingo is faded, but at the time that was the term, PUA, pickup artist. And a lot of people call that, associate that with misogyny. And I'm afraid to say what I'm about to say, because as a white man, if you get called misogynist, that can stick. And in my experience, it's the exact, exact opposite of that, in my experience. And that's why most people have not heard what, I've, what happened next. So I read this book. Neil Strauss began, it's like a hero's journey. He began as a loser who was very successful. And he went on tour with Motley Crue and had a backstage pass. And not every girl likes musicians, but musicians get laid. And he could not get laid 
on tour with Motley Crue. And then he heard about in the early internet, late nineties, early two thousands, about these guys who met online and they'd share with each other how to, at the time it was pretty manipulative stuff, but it was like how to get girls. And one guy would say this works. And another guy would try it out and say, well, this way works better. This way it doesn't work. They would just share stuff. And then gradually someone would write one guy and say, would you, I'll pay you if you teach me. And that developed into schools and that developed into a, a style of dating coaching. I, I, I don't know what the terminology would be. And I came into this in 2007. And I think Neil probably got into it around 2001. I forget the details. So I was getting into it, not early, but not late, but somewhere a little past its its um, heyday. I mean, this is once there's a best-selling book about it, it's, everyone knows about it. And it's no longer a secret. Yeah. And by this stage, I'd already passed through my clubbing phase of going out dancing a lot and like being surrounded by like this super hot women all over the I mean, New York clubs are filled with that. And I was also not getting late. So, and that's the topic of another talk, which I, I think we'll do next if we do it. And he eventually, he started off as this loser and then he got to be friends with Mystery and then Mystery taught him. And then one day he like went onto one of the message boards and it said he was voted the number one. And so that's like this hero strength. He could like pick up girls like crazy and so now I was older at this stage. So uh, I was probably 36, 37 years old. So I'm not looking to go out to clubs and stuff. And I like the idea of having one night stands, but I'm also looking for um, not the same thing a guy in his twenties would be looking for. Although I do want something. So I read this book and I mistake the book as many people do. It's a, it's a story. It's a great story. I mean, it's a very well-told story, compelling to read. It is not an instruction book. It's not saying how to do it, but it leaves lots of clues. So I learned some of the clues and I do a couple things. One is I, I make my first approaches ever in my life. I still remember the first, I walk up to a group of people at, there's an event at a museum, a social thing. And I say, I'm going to go up to that group of people. I, I, I took a friend of mine who's a girl who actually, a, a, a one-time girl that I dated who now we were friends and neighbors. And I say, will you help me with this? I read this. And she's, she's very geeky. And she's like, sure, let's go. So we go out and I say, I'm going to go over that group and I'm going to do an opinion opener or something like that. I forget how I said it. And I go over and I say, excuse me. And the people turn and look at me. And the first thing that comes to my mind is they really are interested in what I have to say. But of course, my mind, then my mind goes like, what I say, what I do, what I say, what I do. Like my, my, my blood pressure shoots to the roof. And I don't remember what I said at all. But I was like, oh, there's something here to learn. There's something going on that I have no idea about this stuff. So I make a couple approaches over the next short period of time. And, oh, okay, I read the book and I, coming out of, the reason business school is important here is that I learned, I wanted to learn leadership. I wanted to learn how to lead because I'd never known, I thought before then in the context of leadership, Martin Luther King was born Martin Luther King and he's a leader. But then business school taught me if you behave in different ways, people respond to how you behave and you can change how you behave. Whoa, mind-blowing stuff at that time. So after business school, I thought, I want to learn this stuff. And I also picked up that my greatest joys in life entered my life as my greatest fears. So sports, for example, when I started sports, I, I didn't want the disc because if I dropped it, it let the team down. So, I'd, But then when I got really good, I wanted I want to be in, in the most critical games. And academics, when I started in physics, I was like, if I, I didn't want to raise my hand because guys to each other in physics are so much like, you didn't know that? And I didn't want to feel ashamed of myself. But then when I got really good at it, I was like, it was a great joy. And then I read this book and I was like, holy cow, this is my greatest anxiety. This is my greatest fear is talking to women 
when I read that book, I said, I'm going to do what he did. I'm not, I'm not trying to become who he became. I'm going to try to become something slightly different that's right for me, but I'm going to go through that magnitude of a transformation. This is going to be my number one concern, my number one project, my number one priority. I'm going to get good with women in the way that Neil did, in my way. So I made a couple of approaches early on. And, and by the way, this time, by this stage, I'd like played at nationals and worlds in Frisbee. I had my PhD in physics. So I could achieve a lot. Like I'm not saying I'm going to kind of work at this. I'm going to get world-class at this. So I made a couple of approaches at the beginning and actually got laid twice. And beautiful women. And I was like, this is amazing. And then began a year of what I believe looking back was there was a me that was trying to be friends with girls all the time, sabotaging romance, being unavailable, being a nice guy. And then there's this guy who was trying all these, at the time, tricks. But what I would look at is if you want to learn to play the piano, you got to play some scales. Scales aren't music, but you got to practice to get the, to develop the skills. Like you lift weights to, to play basketball, not because there's weights on the basketball court, but because the strength helps. So I had to practice all these different things. So in, in that year, after those first two, there was nothing. I would just go out and approach and no results, or rather results that were just would be depressing, except that I was set that I knew this was going to take years. What I believe was happening was that I was, I, I believe that I appeared like a, a Frankenstein's kind of hodgepodge of nice guy plus pickup artist that was coming out as a weird sort of couldn't make sense of it. And I didn't know what parts of me to jettison and which parts to take on and which parts to keep and which parts not to take on. So it was just like, I, I had to rebuild myself from scratch. And eventually things started to click. And also you alluded to something earlier that was a big piece of this, which were there at the time they called them layers. It was men's groups that would, guys would get together and you'd meet and ask each other questions. And periodically, if there was a guru in town, he would come up and speak to the group and he'd say, here's some tips and here's some things that work here. Here's some things that don't work. And if you want more training, I'm this much per hour and you can hire me as a coach or you can take one of my boot camps or something like that. I thought, I don't need that. I'm going to teach myself all this stuff. So you read all the stuff and you go online, you learn all the stuff and you practice and you practice. I had some of my first friendships with men that were really good friendships. I mean, I had teammates that we were kind of close, but I never opened up with. But here, I mean, a guy who's thinking, I'm not going to get laid unless I get this stuff, you open up. And so it's some things like swimming across the Hudson. That comes from a guy who's also really into this. And like, it's, I mean, it's a mix of personal development, personal growth and fun. And those friendships and those, those relationships also blossomed. So I could go out and have fun that, that I never did before. That guy, I remember him telling me how to throw a girl against the wall. And when I first heard this, I was like, that sounds violent. That sounds terrible. And he's like, no, no, this is how you do it. And he taught me about where to put your feet, where to put your hands, the mechanical way of doing things and when to do it, you know, not just any time, but after she says something great, something that deserves a reward in some sense. And I was like, what's this, by the way, is years into it. If anyone who's a beginner and like identifying with me of before, do not try this at home until you, you know, practice a lot. But one time I'm walking down the street and the girl says something I'd been practicing or I'd been thinking about it. And I like put my arm around her waist, spin her around in front of me, put my hand behind her head so that she doesn't, there's no chance of risk of injury. And the look in her eyes was just like, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it. 
And that was my read. You have to ask her. But that changed a lot. But that also encapsulates this whole, or illustrates this whole transition of thinking women are delicate and men are just constantly abusing them. And I'm going to be the one who doesn't. To who is this woman right here? This one, this person right here. What does she love? What does she hate? What, is she, what are her passions? What is it about me that she likes? Of course, this took years and years and years to get to. Now I'm seeing her as an individual. So eventually I started making, becoming friends with guys who are coaches. So be, to be a coach means people are paying you thousands of dollars to spend a weekend with them and take them out, teach them the theory and the inner game and the outer game and all the stuff, and then go out with them and they'd say, approach her. Okay, here's what worked. Here's what didn't work. Here's, you know, and approach her. So sometimes they would ask me to coach with them. So for them to coach, often it's useful to have a guy who, there who's like uh, managing, you know, like if, if you bring out five guys in a boot camp, you're working with one. What about the other, the other four? So I thought I was getting pretty good. And I was getting pretty good. And a, a lot of the coach guys, they're like cool guys. And by this point, I mean, certainly I had a lot of achievements. And even if I wasn't as successful as they were with women, I was a pretty cool guy to have around. And I missed up sometimes. Uh, I mean, I, you get rejected like crazy. So I'm getting better and getting better. And what I say about getting better is, is my relationships are getting much more meaningful. I'm opening up. I'm, I'm starting off by sharing who I am and starting to get that if she doesn't like me, great. She should find another guy. I don't want to, I don't want to be with a girl who doesn't like me. I don't care how attractive she is physically. There's, there's much more to it than that. But my goal wasn't to get laid. My goal wasn't sex. I, I guess there are some asexual women out there. So it might be that she doesn't want sex at all. If she wants sex, there's a chance that she's not attracted to someone like me at all. Girls like that, if we're out in a social situation, like a, a club or a bar, I want to give her time to do her thing. But there are going to be girls who are attracted to me just for my physical myself, but they might not be attracted to me for how I behave. So I want to make myself as transparent, as open as possible. I want her to see who I am. And I'm not feeling judged. I'm just, either she's attracted or not. And if she's attracted to me, if she wants to have sex with me, I want to make it her comfortable with that. I want to get her to a place where she wants to attack me. And then I want to pace things so she can get what she wants. And I have to lead a situation where she wants me and is not inhibited in going for what she wants. I love that. That's what I'm after, is a girl that wants sex with me to make her feel comfortable going after what she wants. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, bringing it back to leadership, when we think about leading and being a great leader, not a good leader, but a great leader, you know, we talked about this people trying to be a good guy, but that's different. Being a great leader is finding out what, what you know, in my world at least, one of the things that we talk about is if the single monolithic difference between average and spectacular is a unified meaning. Finding the meaning for that person, what matters most to them, and seeing if you can facilitate that inside of your organization. And it seems like in many ways that was your evolution in that you had this idea of what women wanted, which had nothing to do with women. 
yeah. and everything to do with social conditioning. And then you sort of were pulled to the, we'll use this term for a minute, but pulled to the dark side only because as we record this, it is Star Wars Day. It's May the 4th. Ah, yeah. May the 4th be with you. Uh-huh. Um, and so, uh, you know, so then you, you get pulled to this other side, which is, does have a lot of misogyny in it, but you're not going down that road. You're actually finding the clues and looking at it. And, and interestingly enough, you know, it's fascinating to me because you almost approach it academically, you know, because all this academic training seemed to have taken on to you that you were, well, I need to learn this and then I need to learn this in order to become really excellent at this, which is you know, very academic of you. And then you, but you move that towards, of course you want to get laid. You're a single man, whatever it is, but, but you were moving it to ultimately towards a level of intimacy where you can meet what it is that person wants without them feeling bad for wanting it. So it becomes very intimate and very personal. So it's a very interesting evolution because you end up being the good guy by providing what they want and giving permission for that without any shaming, but at the same time also feeling more comfortable with them and you get what you want. I had no idea at the time that this was as effective leadership training as there as you can get because my leadership practice emerged from this, both my practice as well as my teaching and coaching practice, because eventually I started coaching myself, that I myself started coaching. So I want to talk about some of the experiences with women. All right, I'm going to tell you one experience with, with one woman, and then I'm going to tell you about the coaching stuff. One time I was at this party. There, Oh, man, there were these great parties. I would go out a lot more. Oh, you were talking about I approaching this academically, and this is a major shift in my life away from build foundation, build foundation, build foundation, learn, 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 and act. Just act. Later, there's another shift that was acting in service of others. That came, that's a whole other thing. But this opened the door for that. So I'm I'm being much more, like swimming across the Hudson is not something you study about. You just do it. And anyway, so I'm at this event. It was a really cool party uh, that happened in New York a lot. And I meet some girl and we go home together and we have sex. And now I can't call it one night stand because to me, one night stand means you never see each other again. She gets in touch with me later and she says she wants to take me out to dinner. I'm like, what's the deal? She says she had a four, no, two year dry spell. And she tells me this whole story about how when she was, she took like a six month break from relationships. And she said for six months, she was going to go without any relationships. All right, fine. At the end of the six months, she decided to start things happening again. So another six months go by and she's like, that's weird. I don't know what's, you know, like she's starting to feel kind of concerned. Another six months go by and she's like, uh-oh, what's what's wrong? And then like another six months go by. So now it's two years. And she's like, every time she talks to a guy, she's, what's going on? Is this going to be the guy? What's happening? Is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong? I don't know what's going on inside her head, but she was really troubled. But she said that with me, all of that went out the window. She didn't even think about any of it. She just had fun. And she came back to my place and like the next morning, she's just like, that was great. Like all the problems solved, like her dry spell is over and she feels great about it. And I say, well, can I, any restaurant? She's like, Josh, I work in finance. It doesn't matter. Go pick any place you want. So I picked nearby me, there's like Babo, which I'd never been to. And it's like very expensive. And so she takes me there. We actually, the reservations were all didn't work out. So it was like a 90 minute wait. We went to a place around the corner, but 
this was like way beyond my horizon from before. This was like absolutely impossible. And the couple of one-night stands that I've had have been just magical experiences. I mean, people say oh, it's a low value or something like that. But to me, it's, it's also, that's getting swept off your feet and sweeping her off her feet. That has been, that has been my experience. I've never had an experience that I felt like, I don't know, dirty or, or, or sneaky or anything like that. It's always been more open, more honest. That's been my experience. I'm sure I've made things brighter in my memories. I don't, I mean, I don't remember all the times I got rejected and things like that. There were a lot of that. Once I was out with a friend very early on and he was like, go over and talk to those girls over there. And he was into Hispanic women. So it's in some salsa club. I'm like looking around, there's no one that I'm really attracted to. So anyway, he goes, go approach them. Some, And I was like, I was like, what do I say? He's like, you'll figure out when you get there. I was like, uh, okay. So I go through the crowd and I just kind of pop up in the middle of this group and I say something and they look at me and I'm like, I have no idea what to say. I'm totally flummoxed. Just this sort of thing would happen all the time. You just kind of learn. I, I was just totally embarrassed and ashamed, but you don't die and you live to do it. Actually, one time I remember at this time, I'm talking to some girl at the bar and I, looking back now, I realized she was, I think she engineered this. Cause I think she came up to me and maybe asked me to buy her a drink or, and next thing I know there is some like guy that's 250 pounds of muscle in my face. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, what? He's like, that's my girl. And I think she set this up like to get the attention anyway. So that was like a da- not dangerous, but I guess if I had reacted differently, I just kind of went away. That was also at that, that night was a time when this girl came up to me and she was like, buy me a drink. I was like, I don't know you. She was like, buy me a drink. I was like, I don't know you. And she just lays on me over and over again. Buy me a drink, buy me a drink. Finally, I'm like, fine, I buy a drink. And she just disappears. I was like, how cruel and manipulative. Anyway, at some point, I decided that I didn't need coaching because I could learn all the stuff on my own. And one time I was pleasantly surprised. There's a, a, an all day summit they would call it, when a bunch of gurus would come together and they just pitch after pitch. I mean, they're giving value in in each of their ways. And the pitch is always like, here's how I teach and coach. Here's something you can learn from me. And if you want more, come see me after and I'll give you a discount just for today. So there's one guy, Brad P. He's been a guest on my podcast. And I recommend people go listen to that podcast episode because talking, having him as a guest was my first time sharing some of this stuff. So he and his New York coach, go up and they do their thing and they're bringing something to it that I've never seen before. Cause the, the general ethos that I, that I saw, and maybe it's just cause I was picking up on it was like, you got to work hard at this stuff. And if you work hard, you'll get the results. I, that resonated with me very strongly. So Glenn, Glenn was the other guy, Glenn and Brad are up there and they're just having fun. They're just talking about how much fun they have when they go out and how successful that is. And I was like, fun, fun. That's what I want. It's <laughs> a concept. Yeah. So Brad says at one point, he goes, how many people out there, he describes his program. The, the standard way is a, is a weekend boot camp. So like five or six guys, two coaches usually, and you meet on a Friday afternoon, you talk theory, you talk about how we're going to do things. And that night you go out to a bar, you go out that night and whatever happens, you know, guys are trying to meet girls and so forth. And, and then Saturday you meet, review what happens Friday night, talk some more stuff go out against Saturday night, then you do the best you can and hopefully things work out. And then Sunday you meet again and that's a boot camp. Brad was doing a full year program online that you had to do yourself. There was some coaching, but it was really online and it was mainly reading stuff. But the value of it, it was 
it was called 30-30. You had to approach at least 30 women every 30 days. No one was making you do it. In a boot camp, the guys are like actually pushing you sometimes to go in, to go talk to the girl. This was all self-done, but the price was really low. I'm thinking a full year for not that much monthly cost of fun. Most people, it doesn't work because they're not going to finish. You know, anyone who does online courses, it's like 99% of them drop out by the, like a third of the way through. But I knew I was going to make it all the way through. So I signed up. For, oh, so at one point he said, how many people out there are interested in this? And I thought, I help so many coaches. All, a lot of people in this room, a lot of the guys know me from being in this community. I can't raise my hand because my status is too high. On the other hand, I was like, I like this. So I put my hand up and he called a bunch of guys out and said, everyone who raised your hand, come on up and I'm going to give you like a once over and, and say like, here's what works for you. Here's what doesn't from just your first appearance. So I go up there and he's like, you know, I forget what he said, but I decided to do the course. And uh, so I signed up for it and I start a month later, whenever the starting point was. And actually his, his, um, his helper, Drew said, you know, you've clearly are not a beginner. You don't have to do all the months if you don't want. I said, if you set this up a certain way, I don't want any gaps in my, in my background. In physics, I had that. In, in sports, I had that. I, don't, I want to have a solid foundation. So I did month after month after month. I did everything by the book. About six months in, he had a rule on the message boards when people post, when guys post what works, what doesn't work. No advice from people who, or only advice from people who he's approved to give advice. So at six months in, you can apply to be an online coach. So I applied. He was like, yes, you can be an online coach. I was like, ah, my first coaching thing. That was my standard of success was to be coach. Then at the end of the six months, the next six months, I finished and I got all the results that I was looking for. I put everything into this and it was, I was a new man in many ways. And then I applied to try out to be a coach for him. So this, this is back when I was still flying and he was at, he's from New York, but he was out in LA. And I think I had a trip out to China or something like that for work. And so I go to LA for tryouts to become a coach. So there's five or 10 guys trying out to become a coach. And most of them know him because he's got, he has a, um, it was called the mansion, the pickup mansion, I think, or Brad's. Anyway, the guys could live there and near the Hollywood place to go out in the Hollywood Hills, not far from, and, and they would get like, not daily, but regular coaching. And they could go out with Brad and they were all together forming this community, which I would recommend to anyone. He's not doing it anymore, but it was really the guys who went in there, they were there for a reason. They were really supportive of each other and understanding and changed in many ways, at least the ones that I met. So I got there. So this is tryouts. First, there's like some quizzes of like what you know and what you don't know to make sure that you know enough stuff. And then it's going out. And the, the tryout is we're in some Hollywood bar mid-afternoon. You know, the sun hadn't even set. It's not particularly crowded. And Brad and Jake, Brad is the number one guy. Jake is his, his right-hand man and both incredible guys. They both look like rock stars. They're both really tall. They're dressed like rock stars. I mean, they, they look like really well put together, very attractive men. And the deal is that we have to, each guy in turn has to go around the bar and approach women and they're going to judge how well we do. And if you don't do well, you don't get in. And if you do well, you get in. So picture a bar with not many people in it at all. And now they were going in order, I think the, the least likely first and the most likely last. And that means I was the second to last because there was a guy who was, who was there that they knew better. So now I have to go around to talk to women using the techniques that were having learned the same stuff for a year, 
of like five or 10 other guys who had just gone before to these same exact women. Right. And there are these two tall rock stars with notepads standing like five feet away taking notes. Oh my God. And so I go around and I just start, and and I don't think there are any Asian girls there. So I kind of have to fake it if I'm like approaching girls that I'm not really that attracted to. Mm-hmm. And I'm going around and things are kind of going okay. And, and, and then I settle in with this one group and I actually got invited to go to Vegas with this group of people. And so I got in. So they were like, you become a coach. So I became the New York coach. So Glenn was still the New York coach. And then there were two other guys who were New York, New York coaches and then me. So I was the number four New York coach. And then it happened for various reasons that one did one thing, one guy's bands uh, um, signed and went on tour and something, the other guy did something else. And suddenly I became the number one coach. Mm. And Brad was voted the number one guru and New York was the number one market. So now there were guys who coached long before me and they were probably better at picking up women than me. They were probably better at coaching than me, but I was the number one coach in the number one market for the number one guru. So I have this triple number one way of saying things. And, oh, and Brad said to me, he said, every guy who sucks has an excuse for why he's actually awesome, but something's keeping him back. So he says, if, if his coach doesn't embody something about the, his excuse, he will think, oh, well, you can do it, but I can't. So he says, Josh, I want a bald coach, for example, because a bald guy, if, if a guy has hair, a full head of hair, and the bald guy's going to say, well, of course you can, but I can't because I'm bald. So he goes, I want a bald coach. I want a short coach. I want a fat coach. I want an Asian coach. I want a black coach. He goes, Josh, you're my old coach. Because <laughs> at this point, I'm like in my 40s. And wow. There's a lot of guys coming off divorces. There's guys coming out of really long relationships, and they don't know how to do this stuff. And they're looking for different things and going out to bars and clubs and staying out all night. And they're not going to go for, if you want to get laid in, in tonight. You got to approach like 10 girls at least. And a lot of guys, older guys don't want to do that. So being in New York, I got a lot of all the guys, but I, I tended, if there was a guy who was coming out of a divorce, coming out of a long relationship, I would coach that guy and I could speak more his language. So coaching is a whole other world because you have to learn this guy, what he wants, and you have to become very sensitive to his needs and, and his, his fears and anxieties and make him feel comfortable sharing these things. And I remember the first time, one time going out and I would say, actually, this would happen all the time. I'd say, you know, you have to tell me what type of girl you're attracted to because I don't want to send you approaching a girl that you're not attracted to. One guy was like, oh, I like all girls. No, no. This was a white guy. He's like approaching black girl after black girl after black girl. I was like, you know, I think you might be attracted to black women. He's like, yeah, I couldn't say it before. (laughs) No problem, man. But I didn't internalize that myself. Right. And actually there's a girl that a friend of mine came to visit. This guy was unbelievable. and he was visiting from Southern California. It was a Halloween day. We were in New York and we were supposed to go out and just have fun and also, you know, approach girls. And it it snows and it's a wet snow. It was a miserable, miserable day, but he's never seen snow before. So he's like, I can't, I I want to go out. I've never seen snow. I was like, okay, fine. We'll go out. So I go to the bookstore and I approach this girl. And I later find out, she says, at first she was confused and didn't really like my approach. But the longer that I talked, the more attractive attracted to me she was. And I got a number and we went out and we, we dated for another, for five years. She became one of the other loves of my life. Wow. And in my coaching time, at first I didn't tell her about this part of my, a part of me, but I was quickly became open with her and I was like, this is, you know, I coach and stuff like that. 
And she was very supportive of it, of it. In particular, my standard coaching was I didn't do boot camps. Guys would pay to spend a day with me. Brad would do all the booking and then we'd meet. And it was always nervous making because I had a rule that if if a guy wanted to see a demonstration, I would do it. And that meant he's coming to see a guy who knows what he's doing. I can make mistakes, but I, I still have to do it. Yes. And so you have to go in and I don't care how good you are at something, you get nervous. And a woman can reject you easily, just no effort on her part at all. And it could be for all these reasons. Anyway, it's devastating. It can be sometimes. My point of mentioning Jennifer was that she was supportive of this and she was studying a lot to um, get into graduate school. And so she would study in cafes. And so I'd tell her, all right, I'm coaching a guy today in Union Square. And there's a cafe that she liked nearby. And I would say, do you mind studying there? And she'd say, sure. And so the deal was if the guy wanted help, one thing I couldn't help him with is touch. How to spin a girl around, how to dip her, how to throw a girl against the wall. And as a straight man, I just don't want to be spun around. I'm not going to tell him how to do it and have him practice on me. Mm -hmm. So if Jennifer was game and if she had time, then she would be at a cafe there. And I'd say early on, how are you with touch? And all of them would always say they're good. And I'd say, okay, let's see. And he'd go out and talk to a girl and he'd like stand far away and put her off by being too off and various things. And I'd say, all right, if you want, I'll get this girl and she's my girlfriend. I'll show you with her. And then we would meet and I'd show like, here's how to, when you meet a girl, here's how to, how I like to do it. I'll put my hands out, double cheek kiss, spin around. I had this technique that would teach a very experiential way of learning this. And it would always start with, I would say, okay, here's what to do. Do this. And then he would try and it would be all like two left feet and it would all be clumsy and it wouldn't work. And after maybe an hour of this, every now and then Jennifer would be like, oh, that was really good. And the guy would learn touch through her. So, so, so let, let's, let's put a know, pause. I just talked for a long time. Yeah, let, let's put a pause in here because I, I think we have to end this episode and have a second episode. But I want to sort of do a bit of a, a summary here because we've, We've looked at, you know, you, this geeky kid, um, trying to be a good guy, becoming every girl's best friend, every attractive girl's best friend, but not really getting connected, having no model for intimacy, struggling with that, falling in love, realizing what you're actually attracted to is Asian women, and that is your particular attraction, nothing wrong with that, then facing that, owning that, going out into the world, but still carrying this idea that you have to be, quote, the good guy, you go out and eventually realize there's people who are teaching these skills in how to actually not be a misogynist. And let's be clear here for anybody listening, that the pickup artist world had a lot of misogynistic ass. We're not saying they didn't. We're just not saying everybody who was in it was one of those, right? A lot of them were just really uncomfortable with themselves, guys, who just needed actually confidence. That's actually what it was about. It was a confidence thing. And so really getting that confidence down. And you approached it, as I said, quite academically. I'm going to get really good at this. You went into that. But... For me, the wonderful piece that shows up here is how much you learned about A, leadership, and B, coaching in leadership. Because there was so much of 
you can't lead from being a nice guy and being, you know, just trying to be good. It doesn't work. And you, and you can't date that way because you'll never get to the results of either person. And you don't, you don't allow that person to really step into their power and claim what it is they want. And that will taught you that too. So there's that big piece in there as well. And that eventually what's interesting as we get to the, to the end of this episode is that your cohort, the person who helps you, is actually the opposite gender. It's a woman who, if you were a misogynistic asshole, would have probably said, no, I'm not interested. But she understood by virtue of being around you that this could be something different and that this could actually facilitate and assist um, other men in not just only being confident, but also in being responsive. Because I think that that's part of the problem is the confidence is not knowing when to respond, right? So it's not just about aggression, but it's also about being responsive to what's coming at you. So it's a fascinating journey that we've been on so far. In the second episode, I'd like to come into where that evolved from, into, and further, I want to go back again, back in time a little bit, into the expense of you as a human being, like what opened you up? Because I know you traveled and you've done all kinds of things like that. You've, you know, you lived in India, you were in, you went to North Korea, you know, there's a lot of things in there. So I want to know what opened you up as a human, because there's a lot of everything you've described so far up into the, the dating world that really kept you small and boxed and restricted. How do you feel about that moving forward? Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. The next step would be where this goes, because this is, to me, still laying the groundwork for my leadership practice and all of that. And if I didn't go into that, this would all sound like extraneous. I have to say that, how do I feel at this moment? It's really, I've never shared this. I'm scared. I'm excited. I'm enthusiastic. I'm full of trepidation. I'm, I'm deeply, I feel deep gratitude to you for having suggested this and following through. I'm enthusiastic about doing the next stage and still scared. Like maybe this will get out. And like, one of the big things was like NYU is very, I don't know how this will sound to them at all, but yeah, there's more things. Well, that I, I, can think I, of. I want to put a pin in that and just say, you know, you don't know how it will sound to them and you have no control over that. That's number one. But number two, and I think more importantly is I think that anything can sound terrible in a soundbite. And and my simple advice to anybody is please listen to the entire thing and get context. Because without the context, yeah, it's very easy to misunderstand any part of this, including things I've said. And this is not about that. This is about laying the context for everything that was delivered. So I think it's really important. But please, if you're going to listen to this, I again want to encourage you to listen all the way through. And I'll say that at the beginning so that you really get to understand that. This is easy to take out of context and turn into whatever bias you have, or you can listen to it all the way through and listen to the human story of a man on his journey, because that's what it is. Yeah, I, it's, uh, I just talked for a long time and I feel it in me that I could easily talk a lot more, partly because. My adrenaline's high. I mean, there's an anxiety that it would be easier to keep going. 
but then you're saying, let's do that another time, kind of triggers the feeling of like, always leave them wanting more. Me being one of them, that like, it makes me want to continue. So let me leave it at that. I, I don't want to use summarize things and I want to leave it at that because I haven't been able to evaluate. I haven't been listening to myself as I've been speaking and I'll leave it to you to close it. Well, I want to thank uh, the, the listeners for tuning in. I realize that this is probably a very different show than you usually hear on Joshua Spodek's uh, podcast. And I want to applaud Joshua because I believe with every fiber of my being, the great leadership is based in intimacy. And that intimacy is only possible through vulnerability. If we're going to lead, we really have to understand how to be vulnerable. And that means we have to stop hiding in the shadows. It means we have to admit where we've fumbled. It has to admit parts of ourselves that, you know, I don't want to be the guy I was 20 years ago. And I can talk about some of the things that maybe are a little shameful to me as this man, but at that time were in the context of the moment, okay. And so the willingness for you to do that for me is an example of leadership. And I encourage you as the listener to, like I said, to take the time to actually listen to all of this in context. And I encourage you to come back for part two, because we're going to see where all this goes. And we'll do a little bit of backtracking into some of the other things that really opened up Joshua. So I want to thank you for tuning in today. I want to thank Joshua for his openness and his vulnerability. And I would ask you to please write to Josh, write to me if you like. My, my email, my email is dov at dovbaron.com. But you can write to Josh, tell us what this has been like for you. What did you get out of this? What has is, what is it given you peace about? What has it given you permission within yourself about to explore? So till next time we all come together, thank you for listening in and stay curious, my friends, stay curious about the image and the facade and how it only shows a fraction of the depth of a human being. I'm Dov Barron. You can find out more about me at dovbarron.com and I'm out. I can't express my gratitude enough to Dov for researching and structuring and asking and supporting the way that he did. I alternate between finding this episode cathartic from sharing deep, important things and obvious, like doesn't everyone have rites of passage? What's so special about me? But on a personal level, I feel liberated from having to hide these things. Also angry that I live in a world that demeans through misunderstanding what led to some of the most important growth in my life. And those forces that demean, they also support what actually led me to being withdrawn while feeling full of myself. Re-listening to the episode, I could sense fading the fears of people attacking me for masculinity that others might call what I consider gendered slur, toxic masculinity. What I said is what I said. I hope it spoke for itself. In any case, I now feel strengthened to continue being myself, despite the fact that other people will get parades and I don't, that people celebrate their sexuality while they suppress mine. That's the way it is. Okay, that's my challenge. We all have our challenges. Still, the next episodes, they go further. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, 
That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.